Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megyn Kelly. Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show. Such a sad day. I know you're feeling it too. It's happened again. It's hard to believe it's happened again. There's something different when it happens to children, when it happens inside of a school. It's just every time you think this has to be the last time. We can't be living in this inhumane of a society. And yet you get proven wrong. 19 innocent elementary school children, elementary school children, and two teachers gunned down while trying to learn. Probably sitting there getting excited for the end of the year. Summer's so close you can taste it. There's an extra happy atmosphere inside of school these days, you know, amongst the teachers and the students, right? Can't you see it when you drop your own kids off right now? And they went into their elementary school just outside of San Antonio, Texas, and they were murdered. 19 kids at a school in a truly evil attack along with two teachers. Evil. There's no other word for it. It's a story that's become all too familiar in America. A male, teenaged, loner, reportedly bullied from a troubled family, absentee mom, absentee dad, posts disturbing content online, warning signs to those paying attention. But who was? Who was in this case? Who then goes on to kill in cold blood mercilessly? Today, we're learning more disturbing details about this 18-year-old killer and how he managed to obtain his guns. We will not be naming him consistent with my own longstanding policy, since studies have shown that mass shooters typically desire infamy and we decline to help and others in the media would do well to pay attention to that. But before we get to all that, more on the lives taken yesterday in Texas. It's almost too much to bear. But what kind of a society are we if we brush past the innocent children who were killed in an effort to go right to policy? It makes it too easy for us. Those of us who are still here, those of us who need to take a hard look at what leads to something like this. These little children were casualties in whatever societal sickness this is, and they deserve to be remembered. Like fourth grader, a Mary Jo Garza. Her grandmother spoke to the Daily Beast. She appears to have spoken with a classmate of a Mary's and says the gunman walked into the classroom and told the children, you're going to die. It's horrific. This little girl did what she had likely been taught to do by the adults who loved her. She called 911 for help and the gunman shot her as she did. Her best friend was Oh, look at this little girl. Her best friend was sitting next to a Mary and wound up covered in her blood. Also among the dead, 10-year-old McKenna Elrod, a family friend posted online. Sweet McKenna, look at her. with Her bright red headband, her sassy smile. She looks like she knows something, doesn't she? Her friend posted, sweet McKenna, rest in paradise. My heart is shattered as my daughter loved her so much. It's not just the family members who grieve. It's everyone in the town, in the community, the friends, the family, the church members, and now all of us. Another family's burden, that much more horrific, because they are now being forced to bury two children. One is 10-year-old Annabelle Guadalupe Rodriguez, 
Her desperate father spent much of the day searching for her until the worst news of his life was confirmed. Her cousin was also killed, but has not yet been named. Ten-year-old Xavier Javier Lopez also died. He's being remembered as a child who was bubbly and loved to dance with his brothers and his mom. Eight-year-old Uzea Garcia's grandfather says he was the sweetest little boy he had ever known. They last saw each other over spring break and played football. His grandfather says he could really catch the ball well. And then there are the teachers. Ava Morales, one of the first victims identified, a loving mother and wife, who is said to have been someone who lived life to the fullest. Absolutely beautiful outside in this shot in front of the mountains, looking so happy. And Irma Garcia, a mother of four. She'd been nominated for Teacher of the Year not long ago. There are more. This is just a snapshot of some of the lives lost. As the devastated community gathered, the Archbishop of San Antonio could be seen comforting families outside the Civic Center. One man there was heard sobbing into his phone. She's gone. Meanwhile, in Washington, the flag at the U.S. Capitol building was lowered in honor of those killed. We now know that the gunman was finally stopped by a Border Patrol agent who was nearby when the shooting broke out. We do not yet know the identity of that agent, but we understand he was injured in the fight. We've also learned more about the events leading up to the attack and that police were on the scene before the killer barricaded himself in a classroom. Listen. So what we do know is that the shooter was involved in a uh, domestic disturbance with his grandmother prior to the shooting at the school. He did shoot his grandmother at that point. He then fled in a vehicle and was in close proximity near the school where we got calls. Local law enforcement at the Uvalde Police Department received a call of a crashed vehicle and a individual armed with a weapon uh, making his way into the school. At that point, we had local law enforcement, uh, school officers, as well as state troopers uh, who were first on scene and were able to hear the actual gunshots inside the class. Classroom. They tried to make entry into the building. They were met with gunfire by the suspect, by the shooter. Some of those officers were shot. So at that point, they began breaking windows around the school, trying to evacuate children, teachers, anybody they could, uh, trying to get them out of that building, out of that school. What we do know at that point, the shooter was able to make entry into a classroom, barricaded himself inside that classroom, and again, just began shooting uh, numerous children and teachers that were in that classroom. Just began shooting anyone that was in his way. At that point, we had a tactical law enforcement team arrive uh, made up of multiple federal officers, local officers, as well as state troopers that were able to make forcible entry into that classroom. They were met with gunfire as well, but they were able to shoot and kill that suspect. As you just heard, the killer also shot his own grandmother prior to the attack on the school. We are told as of this hour, she is in critical condition. That information eerily reminiscent of another mind boggling school shooting. Newtown. In that attack nearly 10 years ago, the gunman shot and killed his own mother before going on to murder 20 six and seven year olds at Sandy Hook Elementary and another six adults. A little later in this show, we will be joined by Neil Heslin, a father who lost his only child, Jesse, that day, on what these parents are going through and how we can possibly help them. But we begin today with Charles C.W. Cook, senior writer at National Review. Charles, welcome back to the show. It's truly almost 
too much to take in. I know you have young children as well. To spend time thinking about what the parents are going through is is almost it's incapacitating. Um, And yet, like, we can't jump right to the gun debate. And it's that's that's what the lunatics online do, right? That they they jump right to the awful politics of it before spending a moment just reflecting on what is what does it say about humanity? What does it say about America? What does it make us reflect on, you know, as parents and citizens and humans, a moment like this? Well, I think most people can't make head or tail of it. I can't. I mean, if, if, you, if you ask most people whether they have kids or not, whether they'd be prepared to hurt a child, and they would look at you funny. If you ask most people whether they'd be prepared to hurt their grandmother, they would look at you funny. It, it's, it, it's devastating. It's also incomprehensible. I suspect that's one reason people do jump right to policy, um, right to saying do something. Mm-hmm. Because it's not, it's not an issue that you think, well, there but for the grace of God go I. Perhaps we all think that uh, in terms of being a victim. But the, the number of people in America and in the world who would be capable of this or willing to do this is tiny. And unfortunately, it does seem only to take one or two, um, more maybe, but this sort of event is rare. And then we end up heartbroken. But I, mm-hmm. I, I think you know, it's not just that it's devastating, it's, it's that it's incomprehensible. I have, as you say, small children. I, I just... I, it, 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 <laughs> I mean, it's a strange thing that we've entered into this cycle. Uh, someone at some point started doing this, and then there are people who have copied it. But it's not something that had occurred to human beings before a certain point. And I think the rest of us would never have have invented it, uh, even in a you know a novel or a movie. Mm-hmm. So we we don't really know how to think about it. And then you look at the shooter, and you think monster absolute monster who has four fourth graders barricaded in a room and looks at these terrified children and says, you're, you're about to die and then starts killing them in front of one another. Like, how does that person exist on this earth for 18 years without everyone around him knowing this is a potential murderer? This is a sociopath. This is someone who should be locked up, right? And so we look legitimately to what was in his past. What were the red flags? Last week with the Buffalo shooter, we saw prior to his racial radicalization within the past 12 months before he went on his rampage, we saw signs. We saw the torture and and killing of a cat that he seemed to enjoy that was especially brutal. And these sociopaths often start with animals. In this guy's case, maybe more will come out. It's only been less than a day. But so far, it's more of a, he was bullied. He had a lisp. His dad wasn't in the picture. His mom was on drugs. He lived with the grandma. I mean, as much as I'd like to look at that, Charles, and say somebody should have found the signs, that's true of so many kids living in America who don't do this kind of thing. You know, I'm looking for lessons, too. I'm looking for things we can say, ah, that. We would just won't do that again. And then the next one will be prevented. And so far, you know, I see a, a messed up family life, but not one that would have predicted this. It's so hard to predict. You know, I'm, I'm not religious, although I'm uh, married to uh, a woman who is. Um, 
I have a lot of religious friends, uh, but I do think that there is such a thing, however you want to define it as evil. There are some people who are just wrong. And we know this from history. Uh, and I, I don't think we can uh, eradicate them or, you know, develop or evolve as a culture to the point at which they don't exist. And as you say, how could you do this? How could you go into this classroom and do this? I mean, frankly, how could you, could you do it to a cat, let alone a human mm -hmm. being? And I don't know the answer to it. And I do know these people exist. And I do know we have to structure our society in some way to, to accept that really un unpleasant fact. Trying to find them, though, is really difficult. And you know, I am a, a classical liberal in my politics because I think that there are also a lot of risks in, in trying to do that. Um, you know, you, you want to find a balance between having police and prosecutors and a zero tolerance uh, tolerance policy towards criminals uh, and sort of catching up all sorts of people who haven't done anything in in a dragnet and as you say the, the characteristics that you just described are, are common to a lot of people who would never dream of doing this so you know what do you do and I, I'm afraid that I don't know uh, and I suspect most of the people who say they know also uh, don't know and that makes this more scary not less see I feel like I know on a guy who on the on the Buffalo shooter, on a guy who is displaying sociopathic tendencies and has expressed a desire to hurt a lot of people. You know, a year before that shooting, he said he wanted to shoot up his school and himself and got flagged and did a day or two inside of a mental health facility before he convinced them he'd been joking. But I do I do feel like I, I know in that case, we really do need to have a facility into sure. which we can send these people and they have to stay there and there will be an erosion of their civil liberties. And that's just too bad. That's just the way it's going to have to be. But there will be a procedure in place to on, the, on a more macro level, protect their civil liberties. It would have to be reviewed every you know two weeks to four weeks. It can't just be reviewed by one person. It has to be a panel of people who are satisfied that he's not no longer a danger to society. Uh, and, and we need to build the facility, Charles, because it doesn't exist yet. It, all we have right now is is jails and mental facilities that look like jails. And we need I've said this before, we need a, a facility into which a loving parent would send his or her own child someplace that you could live with having sent your own child. OK, but that's secure. Um, but even if we did that in my in my dream world where we take all this extra covid money and we build that. This kid wouldn't have been in it. Not not right. from what I've heard so far. He and then here he, he loved the the violent video games. OK, so do millions of other people who would never do such a thing. I, I'd love I'd love to say it was Grand Theft Auto. Believe me, I would love to say that. Let's get rid of that. Great. I've been covering these too long. That's not it. Um, and in my experience, the, you know, the would-be shooter is attracted to those games and maybe perhaps likes to practice on them, but that, it doesn't make you a shooter. Getting rid of them doesn't solve it. This guy worked at a Wendy's where he reportedly freaked out some of the people. He was an odd guy. Uh, according to the Daily Beast, a colleague at Wendy's uh, told them, he walked around with a pair of boxing gloves at the park. He asked people to fight him. He filmed it. He, quote, menaced co-workers, asking one of the cooks, do you know who I am? She, she says he would be very rude toward the girl sometimes. He would also send inappropriate texts to the ladies. Um, okay, again, you know, we've seen that. He uh, posted pictures of his guns. 
He had been bullied because of his stutter. His his friend or or cousin said she saw that herself, but and that he didn't want to go back to school after being mocked. He wasn't very much of a social person after being bullied for the stutter. Again, millions have been bullied far, far worse than it sounds like this kid ever got it. And don't turn to this stuff. He um, just give you another couple of things. The Daily Mail says um, he was described as nice but quiet. Those who knew him described him as growing, quote, increasingly violent as he became older, though I'm not exactly sure what that means. They said at one point, according to um, his friend, he uh, showed up one time with cuts all over his face, initially claiming he was scratched by a cat before admitting he did it to himself with a knife. Definitely a red flag there. He drove around with another friend at night sometimes and shot at random people with a BB gun. Again, this is not normal behavior, but you, I can see that also being chalked up at, as he's a moronic teenager. You know, he's an idiot teen. Uh, he egged people's cars. Same. Uh, the post I, I mentioned posted the social media photos of automatic rifles that he wanted on his wish list. That doesn't mean anything. Uh, and so on and so forth. So, you know, there's nothing here that makes me think he would go into my imaginary facility, but there's also enough there that makes me say, where was his mother? Where were the school administrators? Where was his t- where, where were the people who said, we got to talk about this kid? Yeah, so I, I broadly agree with you on the need to commit more people than we do. I, I think we've gone too far in the other direction, uh, where we've come to see many mental health issues as a choice or an alternative way of looking at the world uh, when they're not. Uh, but as you say, you know, perhaps that picks up the shooter in Buffalo, but it probably doesn't pick up this guy. Uh, and you know what he did is obviously evil, uh, but it's also irrational. It's something of a, a non sequitur in that you wouldn't anticipate it. So uh, let's, no. let's look at look, his bullying. Let's see, he was bullied. You could construct a circumstance in which he went after the person who had bullied him, but not a class full of unrelated seven to 10 year olds. Right. And, and that's another problem you have. If, if you look at say murder investigations, well, the, the first thing the police do is say, well, you know, who, who do we think could have done this and what motive could we find? You know, were, were they, were they angry with the victim? Uh, you know, was, was the victim cheating with their, their wife or, you know, had they stolen from them? But in this case, what's the link? I mean, it, it, it's, it's so beyond your uh, imagination as a normal person that for a, a government or a mental health professional, it's quite hard to, um, to, to, to make the various constituent parts add up. And so we once again find ourselves sitting saying, what, what on earth just happened? Mm-hmm. They've scoured his social media. There was a an eerie exchange with a young woman. All we know about her is that she was a minor. I think she was in another state. Might have been California. I can't remember. Um, And he had, yeah, she lives in Los Angeles. She claims to barely know this guy, but she posted screenshots of messages he sent her early Tuesday, right before the shooting, after tagging her in a picture of his rifles. And in these exchanges, he said he wanted to share, quote, a little secret, L-I-L, little secret and urged her to respond to him. This happened before it went down. I mean, there's a picture of these exchanges where 
early that morning. It's um like I can't read my own right. It's like five forty three a.m. He texts her, "I'm about to," and she writes back, "About to what?" And he writes, "I'll tell you before eleven. Good morning." And she says, "Good morning." And he says, "I'll text you in an hour, uh, but you have to respond." And that's when he says, um, "I got a little secret. I want to tell you." And he never, he never reveals it. He goes and does it. Now, of course, she knows what it is. He had moved in with his grandmother a few months ago. Um, she was apparently in the process, according to the Washington Post, of evicting the shooter's mother from a separate house, which the grandmother owned. So there was family strife. Uh, the mother was apparently on drugs, had a drug problem of some sort. And the guns, Charles, which is where, of course, we, we are going to go next, were legally purchased. Uh, once again, we have people focusing on the guns used. They were two AR 15s, which he bought, uh, I think it was on May 16th or shortly there. He turned 18 on May 16th. And within the past you know, week or so, he bought these two guns. They were legally purchased. And again, a background check. I, this kid wouldn't have been red flagged for anything. Uh, he hadn't been, according to the cops today, he wasn't in, tr in trouble with law enforcement. They, they were aware of the family because there'd been so many domestic disturbances involving the, the house that he shared with his mother prior to all this. So they knew there was an issue there. But that's not the same as he's a would-be shooter. He's torturing animals. You know, like he hadn't been red flagged for anything. So he, he would have passed a background check. Right? Like I, I, I keep looking at all the gun laws, all the gun laws. And you're the perfect person to talk to about this because I know you're very pro Second Amendment. And I'm, I'm not a big Second Amendment person. I, you know, it's one of the amendments. It's, it's a constitutional right. I get it. But I'm not like, so I'm, I'm more like I'm a mom. If there's something that's actually going to protect my children, let's do it. And I don't really care if it upsets the people at the NRA. I couldn't care less. However, having looked at them all, especially after Parkland and Newtown, having taken a hard look, I don't see the thing, Charles. I don't see the thing. As a lawyer, I want to see the thing. I don't want to make an emotional decision. I realize it's just like, do it all. But realistically, show me the thing that's going to stop this kid, this next kid who looks like this kid from getting the guns. And there's nothing to blame it on right here. I don't know what would have stopped it. Well, I don't either. I mean, as you say, I come out at a pro-Second Amendment position. I didn't always. Uh, you'll hear from my accent. I didn't grow up in America. And in fact, I, I used to have the opposite view. But I changed my mind. And when something like this happens, uh, I reset a little bit. And my brain says to me, all right, well, maybe we should just go all out. Maybe we should just do everything. Yeah. Um, that That's a human reaction. You know, that that's the reaction I had after 9-11, too. Um, do whatever it takes. Uh, but, you know, as you start to reason through what that is, you realize that that's not a plan and that you need to do something far more concrete. And I tend to end up at the same place that I started. Um, you know, let, let's, let's accept the fact that this is the only country where this happens regularly. And it's not the only country in which it happens, but it's certainly the only country in which it happens at this scale. Well, the question you then have to ask is, well, then what? You know, what is the difference between the United States and, say, Britain, where I'm from? Uh, well, about 400 million privately owned guns is the answer and a constitutional right to bear them. 
I know people like to talk about the Supreme Court and they like to talk about the NRA, but that's not the reason that we have that many guns and that support for the right to keep and bear arms is where it is, that the people are the reason that it survives. There is no appetite for that in Britain. There is in the United States. So you want to change that. Well, what would that involve? You have to amend the Constitution. But once you'd done that, you'd really have to confiscate all of them. And it would be pretty dramatic, pretty violent. Um, it would yield all sorts of objections from civil liberties groups, I think, quite rightly. So if we're going to do that, then let's say we're going to do that. But we're, we're not going to do that. I think we all know that we're not going to do that. And so what we're going to do will be far more modest. And where I find this debate infuriating is that the more modest proposals that come up invariably have nothing to do with the problem that they are being suggested in response to. I mean, we, we saw this yesterday. President Biden said at his, uh, his press conference, we need to do something, we need to stand up, we need to have the, the courage. And then Chuck Schumer in the Senate introduced two background check bills that have absolutely nothing to do with this, that wouldn't have stopped this. And those two background check bills will now be sold by the Democratic Party and the press as a solution to what happened. And those who oppose them for whatever reason uh, will be cast as the problem, as, as obstinate, as recalcitrant. But of course, they're not. Uh, and I, I think what so irritates me about this is that we end up having this, this false debate in which the people who are skeptical about passing more laws are told that they don't care about the underlying problem. And the people who are in favor of passing more laws, even if those laws have nothing to do with what happened, are cast uh, as caring about it and as wanting to fix it, when in fact, that's actually not what, what's happening at all. Um, I, I think the people who say they don't know what to do um, are being admirably honest. Uh, and, and it's not, I'm afraid, it's not the easy position to take. It's actually terrifying uh, to, to take that position. To say this horrible, devastating thing happens, and I don't really know what to do about it, is not comforting at all. Mm -hmm. uh, it's frightening. Um, but I'm afraid that is the the conclusion that I have come to. And I find myself in despair, but that's not a reason to, you know, back measures that really have nothing to do with this. What's in the Schumer proposed background check bill and, and why is it not a good idea? Well, there's two things. The first one is to extend background checks to all transfers, uh, even private transfers within the same state. Uh, the second is to extend the period that the federal government can uh, block you from purchasing a firearm if you come up uh, as uh, on the, the flag list. Um, so on the first one, all commercial transfers of firearms and all transfers of firearms between two states are subject to a federal background check. So if you go to a gun store, you need a background check before you can buy a gun. Or if you live in Georgia and you sell a gun to someone in Florida, you need a federal background check before uh, you can make that transfer. If you transfer a gun to someone in Florida, uh, you don't need uh, to involve a background check. Now, there are many states that 
uh, have implemented their own background check rules. So California, Connecticut, New York, uh, if the people in those states transfer a firearm, uh, then they need to use a, a background check. But in most states, that is not the case. Um, the, the arguments against this um, are, are many. Um, uh, one is the federal government doesn't have the authority to regulate intrastate private transfers. Uh, another is once you get into the details, and this is where the sticking point has been really with Toomey Manchin and its, its, um, uh, its offshoots, it's quite difficult to determine what a transfer is. So, you know, is a transfer me lending someone a gun to go hunting? Uh, if it is, uh, what does that do to families? What does that do to friends? Who gets excluded? Does that make it useless? But the biggest objection is that if every single transfer in the United States is essentially recorded by the federal government, then we have a gun registry, and you know, gun registries are outlawed. Um, I'm not, you know, spitting at the mouth against this proposal. I just don't see the point of it, given no. that this. N- hasn't name me done one mass any- shooting where that was the origin right. of a gun. Exactly. That's that's exactly it. Um, So you end up bureaucratizing an awful lot of American life in pursuit of a policy that actually doesn't intersect with mass shootings, but is being sold uh, on their behalf. Um, That's why that's stalled out. Uh, The second one um, is uh, defensible. Uh, You know, at the moment, if if I go to a gun store and my name comes up on the the flag list and and they say, sorry, you can't have it, uh, they have three days um, to investigate and, and confirm that I was not allowed to buy a gun. Otherwise, I get the gun. Uh, this is a simple due process requirement. It, it's really no different than any other. If, if the police arrest me and then they can't provide evidence uh, that justifies my detention, then I get to go home. Uh, you know, we can argue about how long that should be. Uh, the Toomey Mansion bill actually would have reduced that to one day. Uh, there are some proposals in Congress that would extend it to 10. I think Chuck Schumer's does that too. You know, we could talk about seven or 14 or 20 or 100, but after a certain point, we are going to have a due process protection in place for the exercise of a constitutional right. Uh, I think due process protections are really important. Uh, so, um, you know, while I'm, I'm not, again, spitting fire over this, uh, I don't see a particular need to change that away from three. Um, and the one case that has ever intersected with this, which was the, the massacre in Charleston. Yes. Um, and that wasn't quite as neatly connected to this as the people who wrote this bill say. He um, said that the allegation in that case is that that shooter um, who went into a predominantly African-American church and killed, I think it was nine, ten people, um, that he had applied for the gun. They, they had done the background check on him. You know, he, he wanted the gun. The three days went by and there had been no objection from the feds. So they gave him the gun after three days. Well, yeah, I mean, there are a number of problems in that. The first one is that he should have been in the system uh, more in a more concrete way. And he wasn't, which is a, which is a data entry problem. And, and Congress has actually tried to fix that. They passed this bill called the Fix NICS, uh, NICS uh, Act, which helps to uh, to plug that hole. Uh, but the, the other reason it's not that neat is that he had, he went and, and committed his horrendous murder spree uh, about two months after that whole process. So three days, 10 days, 20 days wouldn't have made a difference. Again, I can see the argument for it, but you know, I can also see the argument for changing the amount of time police are allowed to hold suspects. I just would point out that after a certain point, we're not going to allow the indefinite detention uh, of human beings, and we're not going to allow the indefinite suspension of their constitutional rights either. Um, the, the, the broader point here is that 
nothing that Chuck Schumer has introduced or plans to introduce have anything to do with what happened in Texas. Right. And yes, I am strongly opposed to draconian gun control because I think that it won't work. I think there are just too many guns in circulation. I think we'll end up with another prohibition. But I would be far more comfortable with those who say do something if they just came out and said, do something draconian. Let's become Japan, South Korea, Britain. Um, I'm not trying to straw man. I'm not trying to pretend that's what they're arguing for. I accept that it's not. What I am saying is that pointing to what happened in Texas, which you know makes me want to cry right now on the show, pointing to that and saying, therefore, we have to do insert non sequitur here is just not helpful. It's, it's mm-hmm. not virtuous. And it's it's a distraction from what from putting our focus on what might actually be the problem. You know, I mean, I I say this to my friends. All of my friends are are New York City liberals. You know, like most of them, not all. Most of them are New York City liberals. And all of us have been texting and we're all moms. And my friends are like, F this. You know, it should be a lot harder to get a gun. Why is it so easy to get a gun in America? You know, there can be barriers to it. And I I continue to say, like, show me the thing that would that would have prevented it. You can't. And they're very focused on AR-15s. I want to pick it up with you there. Taking away the AR-15s. The AR-15 is just a semi-automatic gun that's longer. It's like, do you know how many semi-automatic handguns there are in America? The Virginia Tech massacre, which remains the worst school massacre ever in American history, involved a semi-automatic couple of them handguns, like a Glock, which no one's even proposing that we would get rid of and which would never be gotten rid of. There's absolutely no appetite to get rid of a gun like that. So it's like, okay, you can get rid of the, what, 15 million AR-15s there are, maybe 20 at the month, 15, I think. That's not going to do it. All right. I want to talk about the, the specific guns and Joe Biden's renewed push for an assault weapons ban right after this. Breaking news. This just in from ABC News, speaking just a short time ago to the shooter's grandfather. Keep in mind, the shooter was living with his grandmother. One presumes the grandfather as well, though we don't know that. The grandfather says the family had no idea that he had purchased two guns for his birthday, again, which was on May 16th. Here he is speaking with ABC News. Would he spend a lot of time in his room alone? Yes. Uh-huh. Oh, uh, sometimes he would go, I'd take him to work with me. Not all the time, but I would take him to work. And it didn't seem like he went to school very often. No, well, this past year he didn't go to school. He didn't graduate, but he didn't go to school. Why? I don't know. You and know, you, you tell ju- them, you tell them, and they think they know kids nowadays. They know everything. Everybody says he, yeah, he almost didn't talk very much. No, he didn't talk very much. Did he talk to you? Oh, just when we go to work or here or there, you know. Did but, you know that he bought those weapons? No. Like I said, I don't like weapons. Yeah. I cannot be around weapons. Because you have a record. Yeah. And you... It's illegal for you to actually yeah, be around. Yeah, that's right. I cannot be around guns. I don't. I, I hate when I see all the news. All those people that get shot. I'm against all that. I say, why do they let these people buy guns and all that? Those stupid, whatever they shoot. And Rolando, when you heard about the shooting, what did you do? Did you even know that it was your grandson? No, the the the, the, the neighbor called me. Oh wow! Good gracious! Back with me now, Charles C. W. Cook, senior writer at National Review. He said the grandmother, who he revealed the shooter shot in the head, uh, believed to be 66 years old, took the shooter for dinner to Applebee's to celebrate his 18th birthday. 
Uh, they didn't, again, they didn't know he had weapons. The weapons were not allowed in the home, says the grandfather who had a past felony conviction and was not allowed to be in a home with firearms. Um, I don't know what's happening there, Charles. Obviously, the grandparents not paying enough attention and the kid's not going to school. The kid's alone or the kid's not talking. The kid's amassing an arsenal. He didn't just have the two guns, the two AR-15s. He had a ton of ammo. Um, it, it was 375 rounds of ammunition, 5.56 ammunition. and this plate carrier, a kind of vest designed to carry bulletproof body armor, though there was no body armor inside of it, we're told on the, during the actual shooting. I mean, they, you know, most parents would know if their kid had something like that going on in the, in the room. These grandparents didn't. The, the grandfather confirmed what we reported earlier, which is he didn't live with the mother because they had problems. So it doesn't illuminate anything. It's just sort of interesting. Meantime, you have Joe Biden, as he did after Buffalo, calling for the renewal of the assault weapons ban, which he's been pushing for years and years and years. And he says it works. He says he knows it works, that it, that mass shootings went down when it was in place for 10 years. And that's what we need again. Here's just a bit more, not necessarily on that particular point, but on what Joe Biden's messaging was last night when he spoke to this. The parents who will never see their child again never have them jump in bed and cuddle with them. <clears throat> Parents will never be the same. To lose a child is like having a piece of your soul ripped away. As a nation, we have to ask, when in God's name are we going to stand up to the gun lobby? When in God's name we do what we all know in our gut needs to be done. I am sick and tired of it. We have to act. And don't tell me we can't have an impact on this carnage. The idea that an 18-year-old kid can walk into a gun store and buy two assault weapons is just wrong. What in God's name do you need an assault weapon for except to kill someone? Deer aren't running through the forest with Kevlar vests on, for God's sake. It's just sick. For God's sake, we have to have the courage to stand up to the industry. Where in God's name is our backbone to have the courage to deal with it and stand up to the lobbies? What do you make of it? The first thing I would say is that he did what I described earlier, which is imply that we all know secretly what to do, but that some of us refuse and that therefore this is an issue, uh, a debate between people who care about it and people who don't. Uh, that's wrong. I think that infuriates people and rightly so. You know, whenever I hear him do that, I remember some of the excesses on the right after September 11th, where people would say, well, if you don't agree with our particular proposal as to what we need to do in foreign policy or counterterrorism or what you will, then you must not care about what happened in New York, which, of course, was not true uh, and was was deeply unfair. So I, I think that framing is is ugly um, on the on the specifics. So I think in the interest of fairness, it's true uh, that if there were an, a so-called assault weapon ban, it's a totally misleading term, but I assume that it means AR-15 ban in Texas or federally, 
uh, that the shooter would not have been able to buy two of them. So let's stipulate that. And mm-hmm. let's also stipulate that if the same age rules applied to shotguns and rifles as applied to handguns, then he wouldn't have been able to buy any firearms. Um, in the state of Florida, all firearms have a, a 21 uh, age limit. In Texas, uh, it's 18 for shotguns and rifles and 21 per federal law for handguns. The problem that I see with that, and the problem I think a lot of people, including many now within the gun control movement as well, have come to acknowledge, is that getting rid of a particular subset of semi-automatic weapons from the purchase point doesn't solve the issue because people will just substitute out the gun that they use. And we saw that, unfortunately, at one of the worst massacres in American history at Virginia Tech. And you said earlier, you can do precisely the same thing with a Glock. And there is just no appetite whatsoever to ban handguns. It has about 20% support in the United States. So why would we focus on this, especially when uh, it, it is true that when it comes to mass shootings, that mass shooters seem to have a bit of a fetish for the AR-15. But it's not mm-hmm. true that if you look at statistics uh, in gun murders, that the AR-15 or indeed rifles are much of a problem at all. Um, in, in fact, there are, there are so few murders committed every year with so-called assault rifles. The FBI doesn't keep statistics. There are actually more people in America killed every year with hands and fists and feet uh, than with all rifles combined. If you if you want to look at the problem in suicides and in murders, it's handguns. And that was always the focus. It's recently changed because these spectacular mass shootings that, that send us all reeling uh, tend to involve rifles. But they wouldn't if you if you change the, the purchase rules. Um, so I, I just, you know, I, I think this is a red herring. I think it is telling that even though it would directly uh, address what happened, you know, Chuck Schumer didn't introduce a bill on this. I think it is telling that support for uh, banning so-called assault weapons have diminished over time. Uh, it is statistically wrong to say that the 1994 ban that I think Joe Biden wrote um, did much of anything. Uh, you know, study after study shows that it, it didn't. Columbine happened while it was in effect. Um, this is a very, very difficult issue. I, I will just say for, for those people who are much um, more in favor of gun control than I am, it is obviously the case that the United States has a problem here in a way that many other countries don't because it is awash with guns. I mean, that is clearly true. Uh, th- this doesn't happen so often in England because the guns just aren't available. The, the difference, though, is that there are already 400 million guns here in circulation. That's the thing. I just see no evidence that that you know arbitrarily restricting which type you can buy trying to ban the most commonly owned rifle in the united states i i don't think that is going to make much of a difference it would if there were zero guns in the united states we'd be having a completely different conversation then but uh those guns exist and you know i i don't think that's the solution here and no i i don't know what is yeah that's the thing this is the hand we've been dealt is that the guns are out there. There are more guns in America than there are people in America. Uh, Over 400 million by most estimates. And the vast majority are semi-automatic pistols. You know, I mean, people, that's what people get for for self-defense. They're not all using some 
old, you know, Western pistol from, you know, some movie set just because it's cool to hang on their wall. They want protection. And a lot of people who grow up or live like I do uh, or have for most of my adult life in cities don't think it's necessary because they got a big police force. And if you call 911, they'll be there. And it's, you know, they just can't even imagine how people along the southern border or more rural communities are living genuinely worried about self-defense and the need to protect their families. You know, God forbid crime should arrive at their doorstep. So there's all sorts of reasons why we are the way we are. And it's written right into the Constitution. And even if tomorrow there were a constitutional ban on all guns in America, good luck. Good luck getting 400 million guns back. So, yeah, I'm in I'm philosophically I'm in the same place. It's like this is the hand we've been dealt. and We have to do something about it. And yet this is the one of the really disturbing cases because I just don't see what could have been done. Yes, it would have been nice if his parents and his grandparents had been better, more attentive, if his school had been better, more attentive, you know, if the community had red flagged him in some way, if the guy who sold him the, the AR-15s had said, mm, seems like a little off, you know, maybe there's some sort of a social media search that they do. I Who knows? That doesn't seem plausible. But those are all like the comfort checks we go through now at the airport with the shoes coming off. Does absolutely nothing, makes someone somewhere feel better and really leaves us in exactly the same security position we would have otherwise been in. I, I agree with you. And, you know, we also have uh, quite an interesting political landscape to deal with. That's right. Uh, in which conservatives broadly are strongly in favor of the Second Amendment. Uh, and progressives are not, but um, are also increasingly worried about what they call the carceral state, uh, what they see as you know, over-incarceration, as overzealous prosecutors, um, as uh, a, a school-to-prison pipeline uh, that disproportionately affects people, in their view, who aren't white. And I think the combination of those actually makes it very difficult to do anything because you know, on the one hand, you have people who aren't uh, particularly invested in the Second Amendment. They'll say, well, we need laws and laws and laws and laws to deal with this. And of course, conservatives say no, but then those people don't actually want to enforce them. And so you have this strange, uh, this strange paradox where, for example, there's a Supreme Court, uh, court case pending yeah. uh, at the moment in New York, where you have progressive defense lawyers filing amicus briefs with the Supreme Court saying, actually, we would like the gun laws in New York loosened because they have a devastating effect on my clients and their communities. <laughs> right. Um, and, and making this very different argument out of the other side. I got to wrap, Charles, but thank you. Thanks for being here today. We really appreciate it. Thanks. When we come back, Neil Heslin, friend and Sandy Hook dad, will be with us. Joining us now is Neil Heslin, father of Jesse Lewis, a victim of the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting that claimed the lives of 20 first graders and six school employees. Jesse was just six years old when he was killed, 11 days before Christmas, 2012. In a final act of bravery that day, while in grave danger, Jesse shouted run to his fellow classmates. That decision is believed to have saved several lives though Jesse's would not be one of them. Neil Heslin has been an example in dignity throughout his unwanted time in the national news. He has, with class and love, honored the memory of his son in public and in private despite his own personal pain, and knows all too well the hell that certain Uvalde parents 
are going through today. Neil, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Megan. Uh, I can't imagine what this brings up for you. It must bring back so much. Yeah, it does. It, uh, clearly, any of the, the mass shootings or especially school shootings, it opens up a wound that never really healed. Uh, but this, this tragedy that happened yesterday, it, uh, it really touched home or, or a little closer to the heart. Uh, not that they all don't. Um, being that it was an elementary school, young children, it just, it, it was, I heard about it in the afternoon. Um, and then I, uh, at, a little later in the evening, I heard more about it on the news and watching it on the news. It just uh, completely reminded me of, of Sandy Hook and almost like an instant replay of it. Uh, the fact that the shooter uh, killed his grandmother. And just being in elementary school and breaching the entry and uh, watching the, the news coverage of the, uh, the school and the, the response, first responders, it, it just all opened up the, that whole wound again. And uh, there's just no words for it. Uh, these shootings uh, and the school shootings that we, we come to expect um, in society now. And it's an awful thing to say, but it's a true fact. They just keep happening over and over again. And, and the tragedy that happened in Buffalo last week, it's, it's something we know is going to happen again. And uh, I just want to say that my heart goes out to the families and the victims uh, of the tragedy yesterday and uh, also the community. Uh, I know so firsthand so well what they're going through and just just watching the news last night, family members waiting to see if their their loved ones were at the hospital or uh, that sense of not knowing. It, it, it brought me back to the night at the firehouse uh, in Sandy Hook that afternoon, not knowing if Jesse was a victim uh, or if he was survived somehow. Uh, sadly, he did not. And it uh, just opened up the whole for me, it opened up that whole tragedy again. Um, yeah. You know so well what I've been through and seen it firsthand over the years. Um, I just uh, couldn't help but think think about what these families are, will have to deal with in the future to come. Um, I pray to God they won't have to endure what we from Sandy Hook have had to endure. Um, being a, a public tragedy, uh, my, my heart definitely goes out to them. My yeah. thoughts and prayers are with the families and the victims and uh, the community. They're going to need them. They're going to need the thoughts and prayers of you and and all of us right now. I mean, I I know your story well. I know Jesse's story well. But if you if you don't mind, I would like to take the audience through it a bit because 
I think there's some healing value to be had in understanding uh, in what happened before to better understand what's happening now. And I know the morning of December 14th, 2012, you had Jesse, you, you're divorced from Jesse's uh, mom. You're not, you're not with Scarlett, but you had him with you and you took him to a diner. You had a nice morning. I was talking earlier about how, you know, you drop your kids off at school and it's sort of a happy moment. You're, yeah, they're going off. They're going to be with their buddies. In this case, it was right before the end of school. In Jesse's case, it was shortly before the Christmas holiday. And I know you remember well the last couple of things he said to you, and that they're so meaningful to this day. I remember walking into the school that day, him holding my my hand on my finger, uh, and uh, walking across the parking lot. He had said, uh, "It was good we." It was too bad we didn't get to do the uh, gingerbread uh, house at uh, Stu Leonard's last night. And I said, that's all right, Jess. We're going to uh, we're gonna do them today at school. And he said, no, we're not. It's not going to happen. And I, we were supposed to go that afternoon into his classroom to make gingerbread houses. And that week we'd gotten all the supplies and dropped them off to the teacher, I guess, jelly beans and tin foil, cardboard. Uh, each of the kids had something to bring. And uh, he was right. It never happened. It wasn't happening. And uh, I remember him saying, giving me a hug that day and saying, uh, getting out of the truck. It'll be all right, Dad. Don't worry. Everything will be okay. And it was kind of out of the blue. It wasn't anything that was extremely different than our, our normal uh, chaos or problems or hmm. life problems. And uh, it was 9.04 when I walked through those doors and the bell rang and at 9.04. And, uh, he said, uh, thanks, gotta go, hurry up. Around the corner he went and he said, love you. And, uh, that was his last words I, I heard from him. And, uh, I sat in that parking lot probably till 20 after, 25 after, um, the hour, uh, doing some, phone calls and I finished his hot chocolate and egg sandwich he didn't have and I pulled out of there I, I very well could have drove past the shooter when he was coming in it was within minutes and then shortly thereafter there was a message uh, that came over the cell phones and phones there was a shooting in Newtown the schools were in lockdown then it said that there was a, a shooting in town, in, in a school. The second message, the third message said it was at Sandy Hook Elementary School. Well, we proceeded back to the school, and uh, I would guess in about a half, probably 40 minutes or so after, uh, after the shooting, I arrived back there at the firehouse, and uh, the only way to describe it, it was like a war zone with state police, law enforcement, FBI, um, SWAT team, very chaotic, 
but very well organized on the responders' part. There were a lot of students that were in the, uh, shortly thereafter, uh, coming into the firehouse that were in the school that they escorted out. I don't recall what time that was exactly. Um, of course, we looked for Jesse and never found him. But the, the information wasn't real clear. It was um, as to how many victims there were or if there was how many were injured, how many were wounded. I never gave up the hope that he would uh, he would survive or he would uh, he was um, got out somehow and uh, about 1 a.m. when we were notified or I was notified confirmed as he was one of the victims uh, but that was more or less uh, and there was a lot more to happen that day that sets to my mind too. You know, I, I know the families went through that yesterday. I I know uh remember thinking a day a day or two the next day I guess was uh, about having to plan a funeral for Jesse and it uh remember going to the funeral home, thinking to myself, how am I ever gonna be able to afford this? And you know, knowing I had a had to bury him and uh didn't matter. I was gonna have to get it done and you know it was walked in the funeral home and it was uh the funeral director said explained what was available and said uh you know there was so much so it was services that were donated it was definitely uh it helped the situation. Well, these, these families are going to go through the same thing. Find a burial plot. Uh, I, I mean, it's just those little things that we, when we have these shootings or these tragedies, we, we never, people never share that with it. It's, it's always we jump onto the agenda of gun control, the agenda of mental health. Um, you know, these, these people's lives in this community are, forever changed. The victim's families' lives are forever changed. Uh, void that never can be refilled or replaced. And as, as time went on, you become a target for so many things. People come out of the woodwork to exploit the tragedy, to solicit off the tragedy for financial gain. And I, it breaks my heart to to know that these families are going, I, I pray to God they don't don't endure that, and it doesn't happen. But it continuously happens over, over and over again. It's a good point, Neil. You know, when you lose a child in any circumstances, it's absolutely devastating. But to then have to have your pain exploited and have the situation compounded by bad actors, which it has happened now repeatedly since Newtown takes it to a whole different level. And that's also sadly likely to be part of their story. Political operators trying to push through agendas that they've long been pushing and using this to do it. And also, you know, we have to talk about the insanity of, yes, Alex Jones, who I know you are 
suing and, and won a default judgment against with some other Newtown parents. But just the community that some bizarre fringe lunatic community that gets together to say, don't touch our guns. The desire to take our guns is so big that a group of parents got together and faked this. That the, that the Newtown families had to endure that and other families since then have had to endure that by people who are so ardent in their fringe beliefs that they actually think a parent would do something like this. And I know you've dealt with that firsthand. That's all, all very true what you said. Uh, but, you know, one of the things that really comes to light to me uh, is within hours or days of Sandy Hook tragedy, the United Way came forward and uh, was raising funds and accommodating and collecting donations that came, were coming into the community. Um, as time went on, it became a big fight. Uh, people, donors thought that uh, funds were going, would be going toward to the families or the uh, directly needed in the com community, um, and they weren't. That wasn't the plan with it. They really didn't have a plan. It took a lot of fighting by the families. It took uh, Ken Feinberg, an attorney, uh, to come up with a plan as how to distribute the, those funds. And it never worked out the way it should. Um, but every, every tragedy and shooting that's happened after this, it has been the same thing. These organizations come in and the capital try to capitalize off of these tragedies. And yes, some of the funds do go to the victims and, and the community, but there's a large part of them that, that just never make it there. Um, there are a few funds that are set up um, that 100% of those funds do go to the uh, the victims and the and the families and the people who need one of them is the National Compassion Fund, um, and that I believe is the one that's in handling the donations in uh, Buffalo. But uh, that's good to know. No, that's good to know because you don't, you never know. You good-hearted people want to help. They don't know how to help. They do tend to donate. So it's good to know, know National Compassion Fund. You like. Yeah, but when we have these tragedies, I'm sure you, myself, everybody, you know, our, our hearts are broken and, and our first thought is, well, how can we help? Well, we send some a donation. Uh, and I just uh, can't stress enough anybody that wants to help and has the intent of financially sending a donation. Um, I'm not discouraging that, um, but just please make sure you know where where that is going and that it will get to the the people who need it the victims or or the the families the community no it's a good uh, caution and it's uh i know for a fact the national compassion fund is it's uh 100% goes to the victims and the family and the the ones in need you know, Neil, um, you mentioned how immediately we go to gun laws and we go to mental health and we do like our forensic analysis of what needs to change. And I think it is a coping mechanism, right, to make us feel like we can control it. 
We can make sure it doesn't happen again. Things that we have proven unable to do. You're in a unique position having lived this and the Newtown families have gone different ways and don't all feel uniformly about any one issue. But how do you feel? I mean, do you do you have any particular insights 10 years later on how to prevent something like this? Yeah, I have a lot of insight on it. And I'll, I'll, I can share that uh, uh, shortly. But, you know, we, we have these shootings or these mass killings or murders, attacks. The weapon of choice always seems to be a gun. Reason being, it's the most effective weapon to carry out these these crimes, um, and most of them are semi-automatic uh, weapons because they're most effective. Do have the Second Amendment in this country, and uh, that should be protected, and we we shouldn't infringe upon that. Um, the answer isn't to go and, and take all the guns away from people or ban, ban weapons. Uh, there's definitely is a lot of room for improvement, whether it be through background checks, uh, which I fully support. Um, and, you know, being more observant to red flag with people, I guess, uh, or individuals. But the problem with, this shooter in Texas or with that is he was 18 years old. I, he probably did not have a criminal record, didn't show up, wouldn't show up on a criminal background check. Um, I don't know where, how he obtained the gun, whether it was legally, illegally. Um, but if it was through legal channels, um, he would have never shown up probably with a criminal background. That's how it uh, looks. It looks like he did not have a criminal history and that he did purchase both firearms legally. Well, that's, see, that's a, uh, so it, you can't say he fell through the loophole. Uh, that could be a 40-year-old individual, too. Um, I don't know what his mental state was, um, but we, you know, the, the things we need need to address sort the definitely the background checks and um, is, is a, a key there. Uh, the uh, mental health is something that should be addressed and how to incorporate the mental health into a background check. And, and that's not something that's been able to get accomplished because the HIPAA laws prohibit that. Mm. Um, with the case with the schools, uh, how did this individual get in there? I, I did hear he overpowered the officer that was there. I don't know if that was through a gunfight or how that happened. Uh, but we, we, are being, we are being told at this hour, Neil, that the teachers and staff were banned from carrying guns at this school, uh, yet to be confirmed, but that's the initial report. As for the security officer, uh, yeah, initial reports are that he, he the gunman overtook him. You know, the, he had a breach entry to get into the school. I, I think a uh, centralized entry point being the front door, um, the ballistic proof flask, uh, ballistic proof entryway. So those are all things that 
uh, are very beneficial and a necessity. Um, but our, our resource officers at these schools are only as good, only as effective as the training they have and the equipment they have. Um, the presence, yes, it's a deterrent. But if you have an armed individual there, security personnel, resource officer, that's a bigger deterrent and a much stronger deterrent to an armed gunman than an unarmed resource officer. Mm. And you have a highly trained individual who is willing to engage with a, an active shooter or a uh, an armed gunman. That's a lot bigger deterrent than for a, a gunman knowing that they're going to be shot at and fired, fired back at. Um, mm -hmm. It's a whole different mindset when you're getting shot at and being doing the shooting. Um, so I, I fully support armed resource officers in the schools. I know that's been a big controversy. Um, but it's something that we have in society now, our, our airports, um, sporting events. So so many places we go, we have armed armed security there. Uh, yeah, even uh, even synagogues now have armed security and have fortifications outside of them. Sadly, they need them too. But the schools have not really been fortified um, to the extent a lot of parents would like to see. So I I, I take your point. Can can I ask you, Neil? Because I think you know one of the things I I'd like to know um, is whether like what your message is to the parents who are suffering down there. You know, I, I know you didn't take down that Christmas tree that you and Jesse decorated together for four years. Um, I just wonder whether there is a message. Of, tree there, the, uh, yeah, go ahead. The Christmas tree is, uh, the Christmas tree is down. Um, uh, that, that I did take down after uh, after so many years, five years, I guess, maybe a little more than five years. Um, but it's, it's probably the last thing they want to hear. But, um, you know, uh, everybody, we all get through it. Uh, it's the worst thing in the world to lose a child. Um, I wouldn't wish it upon anybody. I, I didn't know how I was going to get through it. I literally couldn't see any further than 10 feet in front of me. I could see no light at the end of the tunnel. Um, but it, there's a lot of support out there. There's a lot of people, families and uh, other individuals who have gone through what the, these, uh, this community is going through. Um, and there's a lot of support there. I, I'm here anyway. I, I could support the uh, the victims' families, the community, anything I could do. Um, I, I'm here to do that. Have you managed to find joy? Uh, yeah, I've uh, I've managed to to move on and be able to. I mean, I don't I haven't forgot what happened. It's. Uh, Forever etched in my mind, but I've, I've been able to move on. Uh, I uh, first thing you have to do is accept what happened, 
you can't change it. You don't have to like it, clearly. Uh, but you have to accept it. And uh, when, you, when you, you're able to accept it, you can move forward. Um, and, you know, I'm, I was 50 when I lost Jesse. I'm 60 now. And I have, uh, hopefully I have a few good years left. But, uh, no, I want to want to enjoy what time I have left. I, I, I don't want to live feeling sorry for myself or, or feel like I'm feeling like I'm the victim. Uh, I, I have the, the strength now and the knowledge, the ability, the, the ability to, to be a, be a support for people who are going through what I went through 10 years ago. The other thing that happened in Sandy Hook and, Hopefully it's not going to happen anymore. Uh, it's the conspiracy theories and uh, the hoaxers that uh, had derived out of uh, after Sandy Hook. The Wolfgang Halbecks, uh Jim Spetzer, the Alex Joneses. Um, and, you know, these people attack the victims' families and and the dead, um, the victims, uh, at the weakest moment. And uh, you, you have no resource, and I don't know how to handle it. Being called a liar for criminal intent and criminal purposes, uh, crisis actor. Uh, I mean, th these things are awful. And, and when you, you've lost the most valuable thing in your life and then to be have to deal with this harassment and it, it's just it's an unspeakable sin and it's it's a it's terrorism this witness it's uh yeah and fortunately I, I found the strength and uh the guidance to uh to stand up and and fight for my rights, and uh, it seems like I've, I've made success with that, and I hope that's despite uh, deterrent from other tragedies. And uh, It's something we all need to be on the lookout for, because the family should not have to deal with this. They should not have had to file lawsuits against people harassing you over whether your son did or did not die. It's unspeakably awful. Definitely not about me. I share my experience, but, um, you know, I've had a lot of support um, across the board from people. A lot of people reached out to me yesterday to see how I was handling this because they all saw the similarities of what happened in Sandy Hook. But, you know, I share my story and what, what happened to me, but, you know, the, the focus in the sport needs to be on the people of the community and the, and the victims, families of the tragedy in Texas yesterday. Um, not about the past tragedies, but they're the ones that need the help now. And they're the ones that can use the help in the weeks and the months to come and years to come. I'll end it with this, Neil. Jesse left you the roadmap of how he'd like you to live this life, how, you, how I think he'd like you to heal 
and how he'd like you to live this life. Didn't he? He left you two notes on the chalkboard and in his um, his half brother's. Um, yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> Nurturing, healing, love, and uh, the message he left for his brother, uh, written on a piece of paper, was "Have a lot of fun." Um, he definitely. Uh, I, I never looked at it the way you you just shared that, Megan, but. Uh, yeah, it, it, he did leave a road work, a road map for for his message. And uh, I'll say my, my road map wasn't quite that clear, but, uh, mm. you know, I've definitely acquired the tools over the years to, um, I, I think, make a change um, and the strength to go with that. Uh, you know, I'm sure in the days, weeks, and months to come, we're going to see the gun control agenda ramp up and um, especially with the the um, you know where, where we're at with the uh, political side of it now um, I think you're going to be see to probably try to reintroduce bills for Gun bans or confiscation. Um, I don't think they'll, we'll see much change or much success, sadly, with that. Um, but I definitely support people who, who are out there to support their, their agendas and their beliefs. Um, but I hope we, you know, we could at least improve the laws we have. Um, address strongly address the mental health issue and uh, improve the school security uh, yeah fortification and, and when we have these tragedies we you know we have to whatever failed there on this the end of security of, of and not to blame uh, and I'm putting blame on a school or a, a resource no. officer or anything. But what we need to look at is, is what failed that in this situation that enabled them to breach entry. Um, we we learned from we have to learn from these tragedies, and, and we can't bring back the people we lost. We're, we're Jesse, or, and we just gotta try to come up with, with things to prevent these tragedies. Uh, and shootings. In the meantime, I feel like we'll all do well, but especially the Texas families, nurturing, healing, love, if we follow wow. Jesse's words. It's an amazing message for him to have left on Scarlett's chalkboard and for her to have found after his passing, nurturing, healing, love. Neil, thank you so much. Thank you for being here and sharing your story with us. All the best to you. Yeah, Thank you, Megan. Yep. Have a good day. You too. Mm. My God, that man has just been, I'll never forget. I, the first time I heard Neil, I was live on the air. It was shortly after Newtown. I was pregnant with Thatcher and he testified before Congress and had a picture of Jesse and was talking about the tragedy in the most compelling, gripping 20 minutes plus, maybe it was 60 minutes. I remember we blew out the rest of the show just to listen to him and just so loving and kind and 
not angry, right? Not not angry. Can like who who in his position shortly after this tragedy in Newtown would defend the Second Amendment? But he did. You know, and that's his view. Not everybody feels the same. It's that's fine. That was his point, right? Everyone should be able to express their views and they're going to be all over the board and we should be respectful of them all and we should be open-minded. Um, everything should be on the table, I, I still think, in, a, in the wake of a tragedy like this. Thank you all for spending this day with me. Um, I really am grateful and we'll, we'll talk more tomorrow.